1: Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. My name is Sharon Hannafin. I'm a 24-year breast cancer survivor. I'm a certified life coach and the co-founder of Breast Friends. I'm also the author of my upcoming book, Thriving Beyond Cancer. And Becky's actually doing what she loves best. She's actually flying to a speaking engagement, and so I'm excited for her to be able to do that. Um, Our our topic today is Lost in Transition, and before we introduce our our guests, I just want to to talk a little bit about transition, because transition can be really a good thing, or it can be a really scary thing. And even when it's a good thing, it can be scary. So I wanted to just talk about that just briefly. Um, it could be a, a cancer patient who who is trying to make that transition in their head to be that survivor or to be a thriver, which is what we like to hear. Um, or it's someone who is looking at the end of their, like, working career, retirement. I mean, that's a big, um, crazy time in people's life. And transition, again, can come at us. We can plan it. Or it can happen in a moment. And I think on previous shows, we've talked about things like that. And um, Becky's going through another uh, diagnosis of uh, her cancer. And so, again, that one phone call that, oh, yeah. Didn't get good results on that scan. Can be that transition in your life that can really kind of put everything on its ear um, until we kind of get our arms wrapped around it and can and can really embrace it. So today our show is about um, how we prevent being lost in translation. Uh, excuse me, in transition. Our guest is Dr. John Labret. Dr. Labret is a cancer survivor himself, a past member of the Lance Armstrong Foundation Public Health Advisory Board, clinical director of American Medical Athletic Associations, associations Clinical Advisory Board, and the past chairman of the White House Federal Interagency Health Council. Woo, that's a lot of credentials. Um, He's also a former health scientist for the Centers for Disease Control. Dr. LaBrette is recognized for his leadership in preventive medicine, clinical translation, and health policy. On these issues, Dr. LaBrette has worked with the White House, with U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the World Health Organization. Wow. I am so excited to have you. Welcome, Dr. LaBrette.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Absolutely. So why don't you kind of introduce yourself to our audience and tell us what you actually do with all that background.
2: Sure. So uh, currently, I am the executive chairman of a nonprofit organization called the Cancer Wellness House. And the Cancer Wellness House provides wellness programs for cancer patients, survivors, caregivers, and family members. I am also the Chairman and CEO of a company called Survivor Healthcare. Survivor Healthcare develops cancer survivor plans and manages those plans for cancer survivors and uh, mm. generally speaking, my passion is evidence-based medicine and clinical translation.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. So how did you get into this field?
2: Well, I was studying public health I have My training, my education background is in medical anthropology and psychology, um, health promotion, health education. I was actually studying clinical translation and evidence-based medicine at the University of Utah School of Medicine. I was a student there, and I was diagnosed with cancer while I was a student studying clinical translation and evidence-based medicine, so Mm -hmm. I just naturally went into this, if you if you can say, path of least resistance, studying my own cancer. And interestingly, right. I started educating my physicians on uh, updating them on the evidence as it relates to my cancer, and they were really engaged and interested in that uh, relationship with me and where I was coming from and how I was learning different types of information about my cancer, and that really uh, created my, my uh, career path. Uh, for the past 20 years.
1: Wow, isn't that amazing how one event can really change the course of our lives?
2: Yeah, it was really fun. I was really, uh, the doctors were very supportive of my work and very interested in what I was doing and updating and educating my physicians on how to treat my cancer, and I just saw that as that was fun for me, and the physicians seemed to to uh, appreciate it, and that was launched my career.
1: Wow. And what kind of cancer did you have, may I ask?
2: Sure. I had thyroid cancer, uh, papillary carcinoma.
1: Oh, my goodness. Okay. You don't hear a lot about that. And uh, and how old were you when that happened?
2: It was uh, 20 years ago, so I was 32. Wow.
1: Wow! Well, I, I, I don't Think we're ever prepared, no matter how old, um, to get any sort of news like we have cancer, um, but especially at a at such a young age. I know my daughter was just diagnosed. She's 33, and it's with breast cancer. But still, it's it's crazy um, to how how one event like that can can actually you know really. Uh, change how we look at things. So that's great. So, how do you define a cancer survivor?
2: So, I use the National Cancer Institute's definition, um, which is defined at the point of diagnosis. Um, mm-hmm. And and I I believe or I subscribe to that perspective that uh, if you have had or have a cancer diagnosis and you're living, you are a cancer survivor.
1: I agree. In fact, that's when when we have those conversations with ladies at Breast Friends, you know, I said, you know what? If you live through the fact that you have cancer, you are a survivor.
2: From <laughs> day one to day one. Day 5,000, yep. you're, exactly. you're surviving cancer. So.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, of course, at Breast Friends, we talk about how to be a thriver because... <laughs> survivor thinks about you know kind of I don't know there's a connotation about just kind of hanging in there you know and and so we've kind of taken it to the next level and we want one once treatment is over and you can really embrace the fact that you're you're finished with that and of course we know that that may not always be finished as Becky's a good example this is her fourth time going through this but at the same time you know, we can thrive even with cancer um, or hopefully beyond cancer. So, what are some of the greatest challenges you think you face in uh, in this kind of work?
2: Well, one of the biggest challenges is I, I tend to be on the bleeding, bleeding edge of health policy, uh, mm-hmm. pushing the envelope on, you know, different sciences and getting, you know, we'll talk about translation of evidence and diffusion of innovation and Evidence-based medicine, and I'm typically out in front of a lot of the innovations that have not yet become a standard of care. And so, okay. one of the challenges is is educating uh, the patient and the doctor, the providers, on things that can improve the health outcomes of the cancer survivor. And in fact, one of our email addresses is thrive at cancer dot com. So, how what are the things that can get that person into that thriving mode. Uh, So there's a lot of education, a lot of learning curve challenges that I um, work through.
1: Wonderful. Yeah, I can imagine. So why don't you describe in detail how your work benefits the cancer community because it sounds like it's amazing.
2: So uh, what we do, so we start with the premise that uh, we are typically not skilled consumers of medicine. So we typically know how to buy houses and clothes and cars and food and recreation and vacations and these kinds of things. But when it comes to medicine, we uh, purchasing or being consumers of medicine, we're typically incompetent in that space. Uh, and so one of the biggest benefits that I bring to the community is helping individuals become better consumers of medicine. And helping okay. to helping consumers navigate the, the this incredibly complex industry of, uh, of health and wellness and medicine
1: Oh, so it sounds again like you're singing our song as well because we really talk about being um, your best health advocate right the The tricky part is is sometimes we don't know what we don't know, and that it, of course. <laughs> can really confuse the issue and and make it very difficult. So it sounds like you're kind of in that teaching mode of really helping people understand what they need to know. is that Is that what I'm understanding?
2: Ab- absolutely. And also uh, helping the providers, the clinicians, because the clinicians, there's there's so much information coming out. It's so fast, there's a half a million articles published annually. And when, you, when someone prints off 30 or 40 pages of, of information off the Internet and brings it to the physician, it's very hard for the clinician to uh, process that information at that time. And so right. both the clinician and the patient end up frustrated. Uh, and so what I do is I help mitigate that. I work with the clinicians, with the doctors, the providers, and the patient on helping to inform both groups on paths moving forward, so it reduces clinician time necessary to spend in this space, and the clinicians can focus on treatment, reducing tumors, and then it reduces the stress and anxiety and time for the patient who is, has these also has busy lives to, you know, to move forward with. And we become basically a trusted advisor expert to both of these aspects of the cancer community.
1: Wow, what a what a wonderful service! So, can you explain some of the health system challenges that cancer survivors face after they are discharged from treatment? Because obviously, there's a whole. Uh, kind of like getting everything in place, getting your team put together. Um, and I know I faced that with my daughter in New York. It was like, oh, you know, it was so frustrating. But once we finally got our team in place and she could get into her treatment, then things, things seemed to be kind of clicking along. But then you hit this place when you're finished with treatment. you know your doctors are like yay, you're done go live your life, right? <laughs> and then it's like, now what?
2: Right. So, okay. So the health system, so there's, we can look at, you know, insurance aspects of the health system, time constraint aspects of the health system, the, views, the fusion of innovation or how we look at evidence-based medicine and clinical translation aspects of the health system. And there's also this, this idea of this, Separation of mind and body that really occurred during the Renaissance, um, with regard to you have these different, you know, industries within nested within medicine, where that are that don't really communicate with each other, and we have you know pharmaceutical industry and the nutraceutical industry, and then we have all these terms. Complementary medicine, alternative medicine, Eastern medicine, Western medicine, traditional medicine, osteopathic yeah. medicine, naturopathic medicine, ayurvedic medicine so so these are all aspects of the system, um, and then we have our own human body system that we don 't really know a lot about in terms of again from a consumer perspective uh, what's what's really good for me, what do I need, what do I need to buy or who do, who do I trust or so so these are a lot of, there's a lot of system challenges, and again, what we do is we help integrate into these systems and help the the patient or the client, as we call them, uh, understand and navigate these these systems.
1: Okay, uh, yeah, uh, wow, that's a lot, and and so, and and it seems like like I was diagnosed 24 years ago. I got done, and I was kind of like, okay, bye. you know come in once a year for whatever um of course now um things are way different and that's a good thing uh there's a lot more follow-up a lot more you know uh uh range of what services are available but again that can be a hard thing for a patient because they're like I don't know what I need personally. So that makes, that makes sense. So can you describe some of the health issues that cancer survivors face?
2: Sure, and, and I'll tie it back into the health systems issue. Um, so I, based on my cancer treatment, I'm at risk for osteoporosis, mm-hmm. stroke, coronary artery disease, arterial fibrillation, bladder cancer, and leukemia. So these are the increased risk risks I have early onset as a result of my having, a, having had a thyroid cancer diagnosis and, and subsequent uh, thyroidectomy and radiation therapy. So okay. these are my risk factors. These are, and then uh, breast cancer survivors, particularly now with some of the new immunotherapy drugs, these IO drugs have significant risk for early onset or, or sometimes immediate onset of cardiovascular disease, obviously there's peripheral neuropathies, there's, you know, all kinds of um, comorbidities we call them, right? Okay. Right. So, mm-hmm. so let's tie it into the health systems issue. So I'm at risk for osteoporosis. I had a, I do a DEXA scan. So when I had my initial diagnosis and I'm reading the literature and I'm seeing that thyroid cancer Survivors are at risk for early onset of osteoporosis. So, uh, males typically don't get DEXA scans. It's not in a, the standard of care, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so I get a baseline DEXA scan. I mean, particularly males who are in their 30s, right? I mean, it's never it's not a protocol. So, I just self-prescribed a DEXA scan and had it done, and so I got a baseline on my bone density. I do DEXA scans fair, as a surveillance tool, and we'll get into uh, cancer survivor plans and, and what, what are the components of a cancer survivor plan or a survivor care plan. But an aspect of my own cancer survivor plan is maintaining health of my bones, right, bone density. So right. I recently had a DEXA scan, follow-up DEXA scan, that, again, the system isn't telling me to get it, DEXA scan. I call my doctor. Hey Andy, I it's time I need a DEXA scan. Why do you need a DEXA scan? Because I had thyroid cancer. Oh, okay. What will get you referred to a DEXA scan? So now is
1: this your PCP I, doctor you're talking this about? Is
2: my this internal point? medicine doctor. So okay. Okay, good. This is, so this is another aspect of the system that it, right. we're addressing. Is that right. Okay. So so he says, Great. Let's get you a DEXA scan. So I get the DEXA scan back. I get the report back. I, I uh, will get into medical error in, in a few minutes, but I get the report back, and on the report is a score for my bone density, and it's a, it's a statistic, and it's basically based on the average post-menopausal female is my score. <laughs> it's on the report. Okay? Oh my gosh. So the, so the report comes to me. It's got my name on there, John LeBret, my age, male, birth date. You know the whole the whole deal. All the data that they need to know that I am not postmenopausal female. But the <laughs> report I get is yet yeah, is I have osteoporosis. Osteopenia is the diagnosis, which which was the same as a previous diagnosis. So that, that diagnosis wasn't a surprise. Nor was it a surprise that it's based on the fact that. I'm being referenced against a population that doesn't represent me.
3: Oh so, yeah. So this is
2: so so this is where we we have these uh you know, these these health risks, but we tie in then systems problems with the system, problems with medical error, problems with communication, problems with translation. So this, so just wrapped up in that one test are all these really, you know, in, in my opinion, kind of cool problems that we're solving for. Wow, so that's amazing. What it, what's important is I, based on what, what we want to do and what we do is we want to do a deep dive into the patient's medical record, which is rarely ever done, and determine what the risk factors are for early onset of disease, mitigate, the onset of those disease through particular therapies, strategies, behavioral, um, nutritional, pharmaceutical, whatever those are, and then also catch those things that have already progressed to a diagnosis, and then manage those well so we can delay further onset or you know delay rapid rapid advancement of whatever that thing is.
1: Okay. Well, John, I hate to interrupt, but we've got to take a short break. So stay with us and we'll be back in a minute.
2: Cool.
0: A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today.
4: When a woman is diagnosed with cancer, she faces unique challenges. No one understands this better than the experts at Compass Oncology. Our women's cancer program includes a team of specialists in breast and gynecologic cancers, genetic testing, and the ongoing care of women with high risk factors. From targeted therapies and clinical trials to needed emotional support, Compass is a leader in treating women's cancer. Find out more at compassoncology.com.
0: Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned in to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to our program. We've been talking about how to prevent being lost in translation uh, or transition, excuse me. I guess it could be either one, but <laughs> with our guest, Dr. John Lebret. So I know um, we talked just briefly about. Uh, in your example before the break about how you went to your internist for um, understanding what's what's next and what you needed to, um, what kind of surveillance you might need. But, you know, it's interesting. So how do oncologists and primary care providers, like, view your work? Are they intimidated by it, or how do, how does it work?
2: So generally, oncologists and primary care providers absolutely love what we do because uh, we, ha- we the, the doctors are motivated to improve the health of their patients i mean that's that's why they got into medicine solve problems improve patient health the 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 problem is that the oncologists and primary care providers are completely overwhelmed with work and the situation continues to get worse
1: oh and boy so yeah
2: my job is to assure the trust with the, that the primary care providers and the oncologists trust their patient with, a, with us. And Ben stated, uh, when I had cancer and was keeping my uh, you know, medicine, my protocols updated, there were doctors that were not in alignment with the things that I was proposing to do and I shifted to a new provider. So if, the, if, the, if a patient does not have a provider that they like or that they feel comfortable with, or they're in alignment with, I think that not enough people are taking the initiative to find a provider, find, as you mentioned, a group of providers, a team that they feel that aligns with their whatever it is, their philosophies, their ideas, their lifestyles, whatever those are. That that you want a pro- team of providers that are resonating with you. And so there are some providers who are either um, they don't understand what we're doing and they just don't want to be a part of it, or they are they not they're not interested. They might be you know on the way to retiring and it's there is some additional effort by the provider to engage in this kind of system sure. but generally that, speaking, that makes sense I yeah. love it
1: okay good well and I know I went to a conference that was fascinating and, and there was oncologists there and there were primary care physicians there and they're trying to figure out you know, when do you transition that patient from the oncologist to the PCP? And there was a lot of discussion about that. And a lot of people, I guess, didn't agree. We'll put it that way. And so, again, many times this is um driven by the patient too because, of course, a lot of times because they've had cancer, they want to stay with their oncologist as long as possible, but the reality is they really don't need the oncologist's expertise at this point in their life because they're cured. And But but again, that fear and all of that that we all go through um, makes it difficult to make that transition. So are you finding that to be the case?
2: That's exactly right. And that's, we were talking about the systems, and this is part of the system. And this is what we've found this space that I just love, which is being that bridge. So this idea of lost in transition, which was actually the title of an Institute of Medicine book that was published specifically talking about the uh, challenges with patients moving from oncology to primary care. And there's, there's a big gap and that's precisely our role is filling that gap and this is why we get such great support from the oncologists and the primary care physicians because we help we literally bridge that gap uh and that the because of the population and can and we're going to have 20 million cancer survivors pretty soon here and cancer is going to replace heart disease as the number one cause of death in the US Again, there, there's just an overwhelming in the system, and so we take that pressure off by shepherding that transition. The, the oncologist trusts us to take the patient, to transition the patient back to primary care, and the primary care provider trusts us to provide to the primary care provider the strategies that need to be in place to manage this patient from a cancer survivor perspective. So
1: okay. it's really and
2: everybody wins.
1: That's great, and so so is that what this cancer survivor plan is all about?
2: Exactly, the cancer survivor plan is is the is is literally you can think of it as the tool to manage this transition, and then and then continue forward uh, with the thriving with the cancer survivor.
1: Great, great. So, what specific, like actionable items um, can a cancer survivor do to improve their health outcomes overall?
2: So, I have, uh, we, we deploy three specific things. One is the cancer survivor needs to identify the specific results they're looking for. They have to be specific, it can't be, I, I want to be healthier. It has to be very specific. What are you looking for as outcomes? And we write those down and take, you know, like we have the journal and could take a few days. And they can be updated. But what are the specific results you're looking for? The next thing is why do you want these results? This is what this is purpose. And our tagline is extraordinary health with purpose. So purpose is the fuel that motivates toward the outcomes Um, and if you are particularly in the area of nutrition this is a very important area if you're um, addicted to sugar it can be very difficult to reduce that sugar consumption and this is where purpose comes in when you're ready to go for that brownie or cookie you, you draw from your purpose and then the third thing is the plan so the plan implement the plan and the plan is effectively the map that achieves the outcomes uh, that are that have been identified. So th- those are those are broad strategies, and we can get into you know under you know clinical translation or evidence-based medicine or diffusion of innovation, what are some of the actual therapies? But gen- generally speaking, it has to start with those three things.
1: Okay. So tell me what you really mean by clinical translation.
2: Okay, so there's several aspects of clinical translation, and this is, again, I talked about we believe education is paramount, and and, and clinical translation, there are basically four aspects of how I define clinical translation, and the first is from time from discovery to application. So the application of the discovery of citrus to a standard of care to prevent scurvy took 264 years so the time wow. that the time that it, the first clinical trial was done that that showed clearly unequivocally that citrus prevents scurvy took 264 years for that to be standard of care in the Royal Merchant Marine, and that's where we get the name Limey from, is (laughs) Limey. Okay. 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 Another another interesting uh, aspect or another interesting quick um, anecdote, Bayes' theorem is a mathematical theory, mathematical theorem formula that is currently used in the application of artificial intelligence. Bayes' theorem was discovered in 1747. It took more than 200 years for that mathematical model to be used, and it was in a paper in the 1980s, was published, called Probabilistic Reasoning and Intelligence. And so 200 over 200 years from the time of discovery to the time of application. The theory was discovered in, in uh, 1747 the first time it was applied in medicine was 1951 to, pro- to uh, look at the probability of lung cancer. So, so clinical translation, right now we've gotten that clinical translation or diffusion of innovation time framed down to 16 years. So, so fortunately, we're not at the 200 years anymore. But as patients, consumers, we don't want to wait 16 years to find out about a therapy that could save our life yeah it won't it won't save our life yeah yeah so 16 years right so so that's a big problem so that's that's one aspect of clinical translation second aspect of clinical translation is the process from what what's called in vitro to in vivo right so the process from the petri dish model to the human model so there's a, you know, there's a petri dish process in a lab, and then it goes to a mouse, and then it goes to a human. So that's a clinical translation process, and that can take decades and decades and decades, which is a big problem. If again we're trying to save lives here and improve health outcomes, the third, the third is these what are called uh, that the from experimental to widespread consumer applications. So we go from the human model, and then we, we do, in the human model, we set up these very sophisticated, double-blind, randomized control trials. And the, the time and the cost of these is staggering. So but right. that that's part of the clinical translation process. And then the last way I define clinical translation is the literal translation from Latin to English. So this is where where one of our jobs is to educate the consumer what this Latin word, itis, which is just, which is inflammation. So, you know, what we we need to get things, you know, people say, you know, just, can you just tell me what this means in English? So right. there's a literal translation uh, to help people understand the what these words mean. And then once you have that, Vocabulary, you can then be a better consumer. So those very are the, complicated those are the though. aspects of it, it, okay, it, it's yeah, it's uh, I mean once you once you say okay, I, I kind of got the I understand the process. Then again, you're you don't have to know how the the in depth details. But if you come across in vitro or in vivo, you're okay. Petri dish, human, well you know mouse model. I mean you 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 can start to feel more empowered in, in, okay. in this system.
1: Okay, good. And so you also, uh, the term emerging evidence um, keeps coming up. What, what does that mean?
2: Right. So for me, emerging evidence are data that seem to point to a reasonable and actionable therapy or behavior that will probably turn out to be a correct assumption. So what I'm always looking for is what, it, What and I understand I'm coming from a, you know, egghead, you know, si- real science geek paradigm. And I'm looking for things in the in the science. Because again, imagine this gap between the known and the applied known, between discovery and, and application, about 16 years. So I'm looking ahead, if you will, 16 years, but it's, you know, it's retrospective, right? And I'm saying, what is going to be what, what are we going to What are we going to start using in almost 20 years from now that we could start applying now? So oh, good. The, so does that make sense?
3: So, yeah.
2: So it's emerging evidence. So the evidence is emerging to coming. You know, it's starting to get clear to me that this is something that we, as consumers of medicine, should start to seriously consider. As an application toward thriving, and this might and and because our doctors are seeing patients all day long, you know, there's 10-minute visits and 4-minute conversations. We're not; they're not able to keep up with the evidence. So, our job is to do that education and informing, and then there's strategies on on basically the kinds of emerging evidence whether or not this is something we should start trying out uh, or we should wait for more evidence to be revealed before we should start b- deploying these as as therapy. Mo-
1: yeah, moving forward. That makes sense. So, well, you know what? We got to go out to another break. So stay tuned and we'll be back in a minute.
0: Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit BreastFriends.org and
4: contribute today. When a woman is diagnosed with cancer, she faces unique challenges. No one understands this better than the experts at Compass Oncology. Our women's cancer program includes a team of specialists in breast and gynecologic cancers, genetic testing, and the ongoing care of women with high risk factors from targeted therapies and clinical trials to needed emotional support. Compass is a leader in treating women's cancer. Find out more at CompassOncology.com.
3: When was the last time you felt free? It's time to uncover that feeling again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a card that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states. Giving you the freedom to love, to dream, to dance like no one is watching. Regions Blue Cross Blue Shield. Live fearless.
0: Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to our show. Uh, We've been talking about how to prevent being in transition with our guest, Dr. John Labret. So let's, let's go back to what we were talking about in the second segment and give me some examples about therapies that might be um, in this area of clinical translation or this emerging evidence.
2: Okay, great. So and a really interesting area in, in clinical translation is genetics. Uh, in the news, lots of interest, maybe not so much the same amount of understanding. Right. Or you know, we're talking about us as consumers of genetics. So the way so so we'll go cro- we'll cross all these domains of clinical translation. So one of the one of the interesting things is how our genetics affect metabolism. I can drink a cup of coffee and go to sleep. I'm a ma- mm-hmm. rapid metabolizer of the drug caffeine. Okay. My wife cannot, my wife, if she has a cup of coffee, she's up all night. She's a slow metabolizer of the drug caffeine. So we have a genetic, we have different genetic makeup and we've metabolized the drug caffeine. One, myself is a rapid metabolizer another is a slow metabolizer so now imagine that you're taking a particular drug that is that ha, that is prescribed to the average population right now if you mm-hmm. are a slow metabolizer of that drug that the drug is going to build up into your system and that mm. build up could cause significant harm to your organs it could be it, you know, pick one. On the other hand, you could be a rapid metabolizer of that drug and you're taking it and it's not having its intended effect because you are processing, metabolizing that drug too rapidly for it to be working. And there's actually a third group that, that you don't metabolize it at all. So oh, wow. we know that, so we know that you take, 30 per, about 30, you take a, any particular drug, about 30% of the population that drug does harm, damage. Okay, about thirty percent of the population, it actually works, and about a percent of the population, it does nothing. You, 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 would be, you would be more served just you know having some M and M's because it's more fun than taking the drug. Okay, so
1: <laughs> okay.
2: So with you know sugar issue aside, okay. yeah, right. So, <laughs> so that so now we so now we that's the translation of of knowledge. About how genetics affect metabolizing drugs. That's pretty simple to understand. Okay. Now, now we'll go to go a little deeper. I'm at risk for cardiovascular disease and stroke. My doctor was ready to prescribe two particular drugs. It one of two gave me a choice of two particular drugs to reduce my risk for cardiovascular disease and stroke. I had a pharmacogenetic test done. A pharmacogenetic test done to determine what is my what is my genetic makeup related to metabolizing very particular drugs on a list there's about 200 drugs that we can determine your individual ability to metabolize that drug I do not metabolize these two particular drugs which wow. are the most prescribed drugs for cardiovascular disease risk
3: huh. so I went
2: back to my doctor and said to my doctor I can't take these drugs. I do not metabolize them. Here's my genetic report that shows my CYP variant. We won't get into that because it's it's not necessary at this point. But so then I that updated my clinical strategy based on based on my genetic report. Now we're into the actual application of the translation of the innovation. So then there's a third area, which is, we, which is then the different aspects of genetics. So we just talked about um, metabolization, genetics as it relates to metabolization. So for cancer patients, cancer survivors, people at risk for cancer, it's very important to understand the environmental influences on what triggers a, a, or upregulates a gene to basically turn into a a um, disease cell and 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 therefore cancer and and we can also there's this very fascinating field called epigenetics, which is how our behaviors, our food, the things we eat, the things we do, the air we breathe, behaviors and you know nutraceuticals and pharmaceuticals that can actually up and down regulate genes. So to translate that concept, if you're at risk for you could be at, have a genetic risk to have corns on your feet, okay? If you never put on a pair of shoes, you will never get corns. Sho- the shoes is the environmental mm-hmm. trigger to right. getting corns on your feet. So, so what we need to do is we need to understand what are, what are your genetic risk factors and how can, how can we mitigate the triggering, the upregulating of that gene that triggers some Disease. So that's that's those are that's those are descriptions in the space of clinical translation.
3: Okay.
1: So I've got a question. So, um, for instance, you say you you quickly metabolize caffeine, but in this example, there are these other drugs that you needed for uh, reducing your risk for heart or stroke problems. You didn't. So it, there's no other way other than to get this genetic panel to really figure out what. I mean, how does that work?
2: So, um,
1: the, <laughs> no, that's the, a, the
2: get, yeah, that's <laughs> Yeah,
1: it's complicated. The, I'm
2: sure. Well, getting the genetic. So, so one of the first drugs that was where there was. Uh, let 's say insurance reimbursement for genetic testing was the application of warfarin, so warfarin right is a blood thinner, and if if you are a if you are a rapid metabolizer or slow metabolizer of this blood thinner very much matters because it could be the difference between literally life and death on the operating table right so, it, so the uh, science came to the point where it said, "Look, n- knowing how someone metabolizes warfarin matters so much that it's it's the difference between life it could be the difference between life and death on the operating table." So wow. there, there is, there's really, there's really no way that the, this idea of let's give you a drug and see what it, see what happens. Let's pers right this is common language, right? Let's try this.
3: Yeah. And let's mm-hmm. see what
2: happens. So what what genetics where there's been a tremendous progress and promise in genetics is mitigating that situation where instead of saying try this and let's see what happens, we know from genetics what will happen a priori. So instead of saying try this and we'll see what kinds of um what kinds of uh risks occur. So you watch these, these ads on TV and it says, you know, take this, take this drug uh, and it, and it uh, will help you stop smoking or, you might, or you're at risk for committing suicide. You know? oh my and gosh. So what yeah. we can do is we can say, you know, these risk factors from the drugs, some of those risk factors can be determined a priori through your understanding your genetic variants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm
1: Wow so it sounds like all, all this has done for me is opened up a lot more questions but unfortunately we don't have that much more time in our in our show today so um, I'll have to maybe uh, uh, follow up with you on some of those but it is fascinating and I didn't even know there was a difference in all of that so thank you for sharing with that so I know you had a you had a moment early on You you talked about medical errors so tell me, tell me how that relates to what you do.
2: So, okay, so medical errors is a cr- critically important concept or idea, uh, situation that, that uh, patients need to be very aware of. The, the third leading cause of death in the U.S. is medical error. Oh, not boy. published widely because it's not a, it's not a disease that's, that's you know, surveillance disease, right? So, right. but, it, but, it, but it, is, it is unequivocally identified as the third leading cause of death. That is equal to two jumbo jets crashing every day with no survivors. Two oh jumbo jets crashing every day with no survivors due to medical error. So, wow. it's, okay, so there, in cancer treatment, the medical error rate is about 30%. And there's a, there's an individual named David Klassen, who's a colleague of mine, who's one of the top experts in the world. If people want to, you know, Google up David Klassen, find one of his papers, you know, follow up with us and on um, some of these issues. Uh, medical error is very important to understand, and effectively, medical error, there's two important concepts to be aware of, and there's medical error by omission, which is not doing something that should be done, right, omission, and medical Mm -hmm. error by commission, which is doing something that should not have been done. And effectively, this comes from, in three domains, delay in diagnosis, incorrect diagnosis, and incorrect treatment, which are all related, but these are the the three aspects of medical error. Mm -hmm. Being a better consumer of medicine reduces your risk of being a let's say victim of medical error we would never as consumers if one car the brakes fail on a car because of the manufacturer that that manufacturer is recalling, spending hundreds of millions of dollars recalling those cars if one plane crashes, a commercial airliner crashes the president of the United States is on the news doing a press conference Mm-hmm. So, this is, I think, driven by the fact that we're not great at being consumers of medicine, and so we're not engaged in this in the process of being, if some say, the CEO of our care.
1: Right, right. That makes complete sense. Well, we could go on and on and on, but you know we're coming down to the wire for our show, and uh, so I just want to make sure that our audience can can know how to get a hold of you, and I know you mentioned your tagline, extraordinary health with purpose. So just take a minute and uh, tell us about that and how we can reach you, please.
2: So earlier I, you, I described, you asked how people can engage in this, you know, improve their health, and the first thing I said is you have to have very specific identified results or very specific outcomes And the Mm -hmm. second thing is you have to describe your purpose. So I meet with patients, and I want to know, why do you want to be healthy? What are the specific reasons you want to thrive? Write those down. Identify them. Look at them. This is your fuel for achieving the outcomes you're looking for. Um, That's the path to extraordinary health. Without purpose is depression. Uh, And so purpose is what really drives... And an aspect of depression is is being without purpose.
3: So I agree. I agree.
2: That's, that's that's right. So that's drives the outcomes. Uh, to contact us, actually, our our, our email addresses thrive at cancer survivor or you, individuals can email me directly, John at cancer survivor We have a website, which is uh, www.survivorhealthcare.com.
1: Wonderful. So thank you so much, John, for being our guest today, because, boy, oh, boy, this just has opened up a lot of new questions for me and I'm sure our listeners as well. So um, I just want everyone to know that if you appreciate this kind of information um, on the radio waves that you can always make a donation at breastfriends.org. And I also want to just make sure that everybody understands that we will be back next week. And until then, remember, there's always hope and we're here to help you find it.
0: Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio.